good morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. You can turn in your Bibles there. Uh, we've been in a series that we're calling Hope for the Hurting, and that's what we're going to discover in 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, when you're going on a journey, you have to make sure that you pack the right things. Now, my family, we love to go to the beach. And when you go to the beach, you have to pack the right things. So when we go, we've got toys and sunscreen, and we've got snacks and drinks, and like one of those pop-up tents, and, and a boogie board or two, and some floaties and some rakes and shovels and buckets and fishing poles and a football and a bat and a ball, whatever else we can find to bring, we bring to the beach our van headed down to Corpus is loaded down, dragging the road because we have so much stuff in there. You know, when we go to the beach, we don't go to relax. We go to have fun. We go to play, right? People will say, you know, in the summer, we're going on vacation. Where are we going? We're going to the beach. Oh, man, I hope you find some time to relax. If you've ever taken kids to the beach, you know nobody's relaxing at the beach. Well... When you go to the beach, you have to remember to pack the right things. I will say, last time we went to the beach, there was someone in my family who forgot to bring their swimsuit. It wasn't me. I won't tell you who it is because I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. They forgot their swimsuit. We had to buy one at Walmart. So when you're going on a journey, you have to make sure that you have packed the right things. And that's kind of what we're going to get out of 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, this morning. Peter's going to show us that we're on a journey and that he's got a packing list for us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, and, and that's where we're going to be. Um, but before we really dive into where, uh, to our text this morning, I want to show you how Peter places us on a journey. Um, this, is, this is something that he's doing. He's placing us on this journey. And the way that he does that is he uses the language of the exodus to describe the circumstances of his audience. Okay, so the Exodus. That's the Old Testament story in the Bible where uh, the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And so God sends Moses to deliver them uh, through a series of plagues. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. And, and the only way to survive that last plague was to follow the instructions that the Lord had given them. You see, the people of Israel, if they wanted to survive, they wanted their firstborn to survive the, the final plague. They had to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and they had to, to smear it on the doorpost of their house. And they had to get inside of that house with their family and they had to eat a meal. It, it's the Passover meal, but that was the first Passover. Every, the, the Jewish people celebrate the Passover. They're celebrating this first Passover. Uh, they, they're going to eat this meal. They're going to eat this lamb. And they had to eat it in a certain way. They had to have their staff in their hands, sandals on their feet. They had to have their robe tucked into their belt, ready, ready to go at a moment's notice. They had to eat it in haste. The reason they were in a hurry to eat, they had to be prepared to leave, was because on the night of the Passover, the, uh, the death angel was going to pass over the people who had the blood on the doorpost, but, but for the Egyptians, uh, the firstborn were going to die. And the Bible tells us that there was not a home in Egypt uh, of the Egyptians where someone was not dead. 
And so when that took place, the Egyptians hustled the people of Israel out. We need you to leave. And so they left, and, and they left, and they, they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and they head off to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where they meet the Lord. There the Lord says, I'm your God, you're my people. There he tells them, you, you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen race. You're a people for my possession. He tells them that at Mount Sinai. That's where they receive the Ten Commandments. And so the people of this exodus, they stay at Mount Sinai for several days, and then they begin their journey through the wilderness, through the desert, on their way to the promised land of Canaan. Well, that's the story of the Exodus. And the Exodus, this story is so important and so defining for the people of Israel that later biblical authors are going to use language of the Exodus to describe their own circumstances. Because they, they realize that, that the Exodus isn't just a story, something that took place in the past. Not only is it a story, but it, it's also a pattern that persists. And so this is what the Apostle Peter is doing in his letter. It's all over his, his letter, but, but what, he's, what he is going to say is that just as the people of Israel were saved from impossible circumstances, they were in bondage to an enemy that was too strong for them. They were up against the Red Sea and there was no way out. They were trapped. They had impossible circumstances. We also, we've been ransomed from our impossible circumstances. We are sinners and judgment is coming our way. We have no hope, but we have been ransomed, not with the blood of an unblemished lamb, but with the blood of Christ. And we have passed through our own Red Sea, and now we are on our journey, on our way to the promised land, but not the land of Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the way that Peter speaks about the exodus, the new exodus of our circumstances. And so he does this all over the letter. I just want to show you one place, and it's in the verse that we're going to cover uh, today. So in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to look in more detail at this verse. I just want to point out to you the very first phrase there. It says, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. And maybe your Bible has like a footnote there. Uh, like a little number, and, and then at the bottom you can read in the footnote that, that what it's trying to do is help you understand. So in a Bible translation, their goal is to help you understand what it means. So if something it doesn't quite work in English, they'll just kind of rework the, the English so you'll understand it. But this is an important note because at the, literally what it says there, it doesn't say preparing your minds for action. What it says is girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. Now that's an important note for us because what Peter has done is he has lifted an idea out of the story of the Exodus. The people of Israel, they were supposed to eat this meal on the night of the Passover. And they had to eat it in a certain way. Sandals on their feet, staff in their hand. And then it says that they had to gird their loins. That means that they would wear these long flowing robes and in order to run, to do something in haste, what you had to do is you had to take the front part of that robe and you had to tuck it into your belt so that you could move quickly. 
Well, now what Peter has done is he has lifted that idea out of the Exodus and he has applied it to his audience, this contemporary audience. And he says, you also have to gird your loins, but, but not your long flowing robe. What I want you to do is I want you to gird the loins of your mind. You see, we're on a journey and we have to be ready to move. This is how Peter places us on this journey in the wilderness and and this whole section of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, that's one section. And there what he's going to do is give us uh, a packing list. He's going to give us three things that we've got to do if we are going to succeed on this journey. Now, this morning what I want to do is I just want to cover one of those commands. We're only going to look at verse 13 today. So let's look at it. We're going to read all of verse 13 in, it, in its entirety now. Um, it says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a people who are participating in this new exodus, we should set our hope in God. So in this verse, I notice three things that are true about this hope. Three things that are true. The, the first one is this. Hope is grounded in identity. Hope is grounded in identity. If you have been able to make it every single sermon that we have walked through in 1 Peter chapter 1 this month, what we have noticed is that Peter is really zeroing in on this idea of identity. Here the command is set your hope, but he, he's going to ground it in identity. You see in verse 13, he begins, the very first word is the word therefore. When you're reading the scripture. And you run across this word, therefore, that, that should cause your mind to think, wait, hold on, I need to know what, what he just said. Everything he's about to say is based on what he just said. So I need to know, and if, if it says therefore in verse 13, I need to know what was said in verses 1 through 12. Well, what did he say in verses 1 through 12? Peter said, you're the people of God, that's who you are. You are the people of God, and God has caused you to be born again. This entrance fee into this new family was paid for by the blood of Jesus and his resurrection affords for us living hope for an inheritance of eternal life. The Holy Spirit has set us aside for himself. We belong to God. We are the people of God by grace through faith. So if we want to find perspective, if we're, we're walking through difficulty, we are suffering. The people that are receiving this letter for the first time, they are suffering. So if we want to find hope in our hurting, the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to center ourselves in who we are. We are the new people of God. And because we are the people of God, we have every reason to be hopeful. Hope is grounded in identity. Second, Hope needs activating. Hope needs activating. The meat of verse 13, the main idea is this, this word, these, uh, this verb, set your hope. Set your hope. I want you to notice that he doesn't say acquire hope. He doesn't say that. He says set your hope. 
He assumes that you already have hope. You just haven't put it to use yet. Now, the other morning, I was taking my son to school, and we backed out of the driveway, and I, I put it in drive, but then right before I was about to go, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye, something kind of out of the ordinary. Our sidewalk was underwater, and uh, I knew when I saw that, I knew that it was probably one of three things that was the problem. One, our back neighbors have a pool that sometimes leaks, and when that pool leaks, the water runs down our fence line, it runs through our front yard, and it puts our sidewalk and street underwater there. So it could have been that. could have been that our, our neighbor to the left left his faucet on or he had some sort of leak and maybe that was leaking into the sidewalk and causing this issue. Or we left our faucet on or we had some sort of leak. And so the simplest one for me to check was, was our own situation. So I put the car in park and I got out and I went to our faucet and you'll never guess. We left our faucet on all night long. So our sidewalk was, was wet, we'll say. We left the water on overnight. Now, I don't know what your home is like, but at our home, we have water at the ready. It comes to our house from the city's water supply. All we have to do is turn it on. I never have to tell my children, all right, children, we need some water Take some buckets down to the well and fetch some water and bring it to our house because now we need water. I never have to tell them that. We already have water. We just have to turn it on. See, as a part of the people of God, you already have hope. It's already there. Where did it come from? 1 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So as part of the people of God, you already have hope. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have hope at the ready. The command isn't to acquire it. The command is to activate it. You just have to turn it on. And I think this word choice also is instructive for us because the, the way that Peter words it is, is begin to hope. Begin to set your hope. You weren't, you weren't hoping in the past. You know, you, you weren't hoping because maybe life had you down, things weren't going the way that you wanted them to, you were suffering, you were hurting, and you haven't been hoping. But what I want you to do now is I want you to begin to hope. I want hope to not just start, I want it to start and continue and characterize your life in an ongoing way. Begin to hope and continue to hope. Turn on the faucet, let it flow. Hope needs activating. Well, here's the third thing that I notice about hope from this text. Hope is undivided. Hope is undivided. Peter describes the degree to which his audience should set their hope. How much should they turn the faucet on? When we're watering our rose bush in our front yard, we put the hose there and we turn the hose on to just a trickle and apparently leave it on all night long. But when I want my, my little walking sprinkler to work, I can't turn it on to just a trickle. Or, or when we want that slip and slide to go. That's going to last like a month, and then we have to buy another one because there's a hole in it. 
you have to turn it on, right? Or when I'm going to spray my unsuspecting wife. You have to turn it on full blast. Full blast, full force. A trickle won't do. What is the degree to which we should set our hope? Peter tells us in the verse, set your hope fully. You see, hope should be undivided. Hope cannot be diverted and split and divided up among several objects. But see, that's what we want to do, isn't it? When we're going through a difficult time, we want to hope in different things. Yes, I want to hope in God, but I also want to hope in this because I think that person might be able to relieve my present circumstances. And I want to hope in this over here because maybe that will be able to relieve my present circumstances. So we divide up our hope among several objects. Now, I want to correct something before you think I'm saying what I'm not saying. Okay? I'm not saying don't go to the doctor or don't go to a therapist. Those are professionals that God can use to bring about real life healing for you. You should take advantage of God's common grace. But ultimately, your hope isn't in the relief that they might be able to provide you. That's not where your hope is. Here's something else I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote or participate in elections. Well, we don't need to hope in the American government. I, we, you actually should participate in these things. The American government system is unique in the fact that it gives us individuals, we the people, have the opportunity to influence and to put people in place that are going to advocate for our will. So believers in Jesus, the people of Central in this room, we should make every effort to be knowledgeable, to be informed, and to vote according to our conscience. We absolutely should. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. Listen to what I'm saying. While we should participate in government, while we should participate in elections, and we should do everything we can to be informed and active citizens, the American government and the American way of life is not our hope. Our hope, I've, I've heard a, a pastor say it this way, our hope is not in a blue donkey or a red elephant. Our hope is in a slain lamb. See, we live in this kingdom, but we don't belong to this kingdom. This world is not our home, and so this world can't be where our hope lies. Our present circumstances, relief from our present circumstances, can't be where our ultimate hope lies. We have to reject the temptation to hope in anything other than what God has promised to us. We've got to set our hope in one thing, and it can't be divided. Well, what's the one thing? According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we should set our hope fully on the grace. Grace. Peter is using this word grace to summarize what he just said in verse 7 of chapter 1. That those with, with genuine faith, when our, when our faith is, is genuine at the end of all things, we receive glory and honor and praise. So there is a reward that is to come for the faithful believer. 
But what's difficult about this is we're walking through difficulty and suffering and hurting right now, and we want right now relief. That's what we want. But the promise isn't for right now relief. The promise is for a a future relief. Hope is future-oriented. Look what he says in verse 13, that this grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day, the Lord Jesus will be revealed. That means one day the Lord Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will judge the wicked. He will reward the righteous. He will make everything that's sad come untrue. The Lord Jesus will come. And and when he comes, those of us with genuine faith, proved and forged in the fire of affliction, we will receive this reward, this grace. So that's where our eyes have to be set. That's where our hope has to be set. Our future reward. So though we suffer in the present, our ultimate hope isn't for relief from that. We want it, but that's not our hope. Our hope is in a future day when our genuine faith results in this reward. And we long for instant relief from suffering, but, but Peter says, don't set your hope on, on your immediate deliverance, but on one thing, future reward. So here, here's the question of the hour. This one you're going to have to wrestle with, I think. Especially those of you that are walking through difficulty. Listen. If your circumstances don't change, is Jesus enough for you? Some of you, if you're, if you're walking through it right now, you need to think, like, you're, you're hoping, like, well, one day the Lord will deliver me from this. He will. But what if it doesn't happen in this life? Is Jesus enough for you? You, you have to wrestle with that. You, you have to decide. So let's be honest. Like Some of you are walking through pain and suffering and hurting right now and, and your particular situation, and you got keys in your hand. And the key you have can turn that off right now. You, you think, uh, I, I can just turn this key and I can make this stop. All it requires for me is just like a little bit of disobedience to Jesus. It just requires just a little bit of me turning my back on Jesus, just a little bit. Like, I'll still go to church and stuff. I won't say bad words, I promise. Like, I'll do those things, but this little thing over here, I'm just going to just disobey a little, and the pain will stop. You're, You're done. You're ready to give up. Is your hope? in relief from present suffering, or is your hope in future reward? If the hurting doesn't stop, if your circumstances don't change, is Jesus enough for you? And so Peter says, set your hope. You already have it. You don't need to go get some. You already have it if you are part of the people of God. So, so, Set your hope, but how? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to set my hope? Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to teach kids how to play basketball. I, I love to coach. Coaching is in my family. I love coaching kids basketball. I, I love to coach teams. I've coached my son's team, my daughter's team before. 
Um, I, I love to do that, but what I really love is I love to teach ki- kids individual skills. I love to teach them how to dribble, shoot, all those kind of things. I love it. After the first service, I said that. Somebody was like, so you give lessons? No, I do not have time for that. <laughs> not right now. Uh, but I, I love to teach kids individual skills. But here's what I know about coaching. It doesn't work for me to say, hey, what you want to do is you want to take that ball and put it in the basket. Go. That doesn't work. They're, they're going to guess. They're going to try to figure it out. What I have to do is I have to show them how. I have to show them the mechanics of shooting a basketball. If you do it this way, it's going to go in more if you'll do it this way. I have to show them how. Well, here's the good news about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, is that Peter says, set your hope, and then he tells us how to do it. He tells us how. You know, the main, the main idea of the verse is set your hope, but then there's two other action words in there, uh, two, two other action phrases in there that you can see where he's showing us these, these two things is how you set your hope. Here's how. N- number one, be prepared. At the beginning of verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action. Now, we talked a few minutes ago about that is gird up the loins of your mind. And that places us on this journey. We are on our way, uh, on our way to the promised land, and, and we've, got to, we've got to gird up the loins of our mind. What does that mean? It means to prepare your mind. It means to prepare. How, how do you prepare your mind? You prepare your mind by reading and meditating on the truth of Scripture. May the Bibles of the people of Central be worn out because we read them too much. You prepare your mind by recognizing and reminding yourself that this world is not your home. We're just passing through. And so we keep a loose grip on this present world and a tight grip on the world that is to come. You prepare your mind by realizing that your identity among the people of God directs the way that you interpret your present circumstances and your your future reward. And so that leaves us with a situation where we, cho- we joyfully choose to obey God, even if that means we have to suffer for it. Is your mind prepared to face the adversity that comes for the people who want to trust in Jesus no matter what? Are you ready for that? Have you done the work that it takes to prepare your mind, to get your mind right for that? You've got to be prepared. Here's the second thing Peter says, a second way to set your hope. Maintain priorities. He says not only preparing your minds for action, but then he says, and being sober-minded. To set your hope, you have to be sober-minded. He uses this image of a drunk person. This drunk person, they can't see clearly. They can't make wise choices. Their vision is blurred. And so they can't be trusted with anything of importance. And so Peter says, no, you've got to be sober-minded. You know, he uses this word sober-minded a couple of other times in this letter. He, he likes that, that word. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says that the sober-minded person understands that the end of all things is at hand. They understand. They have their priorities. They're seeing, they're seeing clearly the end of all things is at hand. And so what this should do is direct their prayers. It helps you to pray properly when you are sober-minded. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, 
sobriety of mind helps you resist temptation. Somebody who's sober-minded knows the ferociousness of their enemy, and they remain watchful. It it says that your, your enemy, the devil, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That means looking for someone to uh, to cause them to turn their back on Jesus, to use their suffering to say, you know what? God doesn't love you. Turn your back on Jesus. It would be better if you would turn your back on Jesus. And the enemy is doing that to us. No, you've got to be sober-minded so that you don't fall away. Well, here in chapter 1, he uses sober-minded, and he says, that's the way that you set your hope. When you're seeing clearly, when you're thinking clearly, you set your hope in God. A sober-minded person sees clearly enough to keep things in proper perspective. A sober-minded person avoids things which clouds his mind. A sober-minded person doesn't let sin or distractions cloud judgment. A sober-minded person keeps things in perspective. He's focused on the prize before him and won't be shaken. A sober-minded man doesn't let set his hope on worldly fame or notoriety. He doesn't set his hope on fortune, finances. He doesn't set his hope on a clean bill of health. He doesn't set his hope on being happy. He doesn't set his hope on everything going his way. No, a sober-minded person sets his mind on the things that are to come. What are the things that cloud your judgment? What are they? What are the things that, that distract you or change your perspective? And the author of Hebrews says that if we want to run the race before us, we have to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily entangles us. What are the things that you need to lay aside? And so, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter explains to us we're on a journey. We are headed through the wilderness on our way to the new heavens and the new earth. This world is not our home. And on this journey, there's a, a few things that we've got to have. And the first one of those things is we've got to set our hope. We've got to set our hope on things that matter. Are you hopeful When, when times get tough, are you hopeful? Or are you hopeless? Are you bitter? Or worried? Or a pessimist? Or, or tempted to quit? 1 Peter 1.13 tells you what you need. Activate the hope you already have by preparing your mind for action and by being sober-minded. What do you need? A few things, but one of them, you need God's word. That's what you need. Are you hopeless this morning? Are you going through difficulty and you're like, man, I don't think I'm going to make it. Are you hopeless? One of the things you need, you need God's word. Dive into the scriptures this week. This week, do it. Where do I start? Start in the Psalms. That's a great place. And you know, we we, uh, have these Bible reading plans, some of us do, and, and they're just like, read like one chapter or two chapters, uh, a day, and that's fine. I, I have one of those, but 
but maybe what you need, if you're hurting and going through a difficult time, maybe uh, what you need is not just like a little trickle of God's word. Maybe what you need is like the whole faucet on of God's word. And maybe you should carve out like 30, 45 minutes and just read as much of the Psalms as you possibly can. Maybe that's what you ought to do. We need God's word. We need God's word to soak into our souls. We need God's truth. Here's another thing we need. We not only need God's word, we also need God's perspective. We need God's perspective. God's perspective comes from God's word. As we, as we soak in the scriptures, that begins to change us. It begins to shape the way that we think. It forms our thinking. We need God's perspective. What is God's perspective? From God's view, the end of all things is at hand. Get ready. Wake up. The end of all things is at hand. So set your hope on the world to come. Jesus and his promise is enough. It is enough. So change your perspective. It's shaped by the word of God. We need God's word. We need God's perspective. And here's a third thing I think we need to accomplish verse 13. We also need God's people. We need God's people. We need one another. I want you to know that this command, the, the, the key command in verse 13, set your hope, is a plural command. It is plural. This letter, 1 Peter, was not written to an individual. This letter was written to churches. You know what that means to me? Of course you can read it and interpret it for yourself and, and, and apply it to your own personal individual life. Of course. But this letter is, is written to a church. It, it may as well be written to central. And, and here's what that means. We hope together. We hope together. Because, you know, sometimes for me, I'm, I'm so stuck in my circumstances and my own difficulty that I can't seem to find hope anywhere. Do you know what I need? I need the people of God. I need the people of God to come alongside me and say, you know what? I'm going to hope for you. I'm going to remind you of the hope that is yours. You don't need to go find it. You already have it. I'm going to remind you and I'm going to hope for you. We need the people of God. Well, you know, sometimes I, I'm, I'm just not right. I don't have my mind right. I'm not in the scriptures enough. I need somebody. I need the people of God to come to me and challenge me in God's word. Sometimes I'm not sober-minded. And I've got my priorities and my perspective all out of whack and I need somebody to come toss water in my face and smack me in the face a little bit and remind me that Jesus is worth it. And your perspective is all wrong. You've got things out of priority. See, we need one another. We need one another. Those kind of relationships are not possible if you only come to worship, sit in a chair, never talk to anybody, and then walk out. You can get a sermon and worship anywhere. But you won't have those kind of relationships unless you invest in the people of God here at Central. And the way that you can do that, the number one way you can do that, what group are you in? Most of our groups meet at 945 on Sunday mornings. And, and if you're not in any sort of group, we have groups that meet many demographics. And for some of your demographics, we have multiple groups that you would fit in. If, you're, if that's something that you think, I, 
I really need somebody to come alongside me. Man, if you don't know where to go, you can go on the church website, centralrr.com slash groups, and there's a form on there you can fill out. This is my name, phone number, email. This is my demographics. Help me. And there's somebody that will reach out to you and will help you find a group. It's really simple. It's hard to connect in community, but it's really simple to get the ball rolling. Now, I want to challenge you in one other area. Groups are so important. But there's a large chunk of you who serve at 945. That's a place where you're plugging in, you're serving kids, uh, you're serving in, in preschool, youth, you're serving. You're like, well, where am I supposed to get a group? That's a real good question. That's a real good question. You're going to have to do a little bit of legwork there, you know? You're going to have to do a little bit of legwork. Who are your people? Who are the ones that are, are speaking truth or have permission to speak truth to you? Do you have anyone? And also, it's not just about you. Who are the people that you're speaking truth to? Who are the people that, that you're helping? But it's important. It's important for the people of God. We need one another. That's why we say all the time from this platform, we say it all the time, we are better together. That's what we mean. Sometimes I need you to help me hope. And maybe sometime you're going to need me to help you hope. But we're better together. We're in this together. And so this world is not our home. We are on a journey together. We're on a journey together. So all of you, prepare your minds for action. Sober up. And set your hope fully on the reward that is promised to us at the end of all things. Let's pray.